We are in Romans chapter 13 this evening. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we met. It's kind of ironic that it's raining really hard tonight and it wasn't last week at this time. But uh, So it's been a couple weeks since we met. Uh, but uh, we are going through verse by verse uh, the book of Romans. Especially, if you haven't been here, especially focused on the fact that God is a keeper of promises and that the gospel must be understood, Jesus must be understood in light of the promises that God made uh, through the holy prophets, through the prophets in the holy scriptures as Paul begins the book. So God is a keeper of promises and what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do has to be seen in light of the promises that God has made. So we summarize, we'll go through this really quickly, uh, Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8, in keeping with his promises, God is rescuing creation. Kind of hold on to this. I know we've gone over this several times, but hold on to this because we're going to come back in just a few minutes uh, to this definition. But in keeping with his promises, God is rescuing creation from the reign of sin and death by adopting and justifying and giving his spirit to all those who have faith in Jesus with the promise that their mortal bodies, along with the whole creation, will be redeemed when his wrath is revealed against sin. Then we summarize chapters 9 through 11 this way. God was being fair and consistent in choosing to cut off a portion of ethnic Israel for their unbelief so he could bestow his covenant riches on a full and complete family, a full Israel made up of a remnant of ethnic Israel along with Gentiles of every nation, everyone who submits in faith to the lordship of Jesus. I know we're going fast, but this is just review. Uh, and then last week we talked about Romans chapter 12, and I want to spend just a minute here reviewing that because it's so incredibly important to understanding uh, chapter 13. In fact, before I get there, let me, let me just say this. It's sort of problematic sometimes that our Bibles are divided into chapters and verses. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's really convenient on the one hand uh, because it allows us to have a Bible study and I'm able to say, hey, turn to chapter 12 and you can turn to chapter 12. And I say, look at verse 7 and you can look at verse 7 and we're all in the same sentence. Uh, but hopefully we all recognize that that's not how the Bible uh, was written. That's not how any of these books or letters were written uh, was with chapters and verses there. And so unfortunately, sometimes our mind stops at the end of a chapter, and we say, okay, well, that's one chunk of information, and then we get to the next chapter, and we say, well, this is a different chunk of information, and we sort of isolate it from the chapter that came before, whereas if you were reading it, and I do encourage you to read from a Bible, there are lots on the market now, thankfully, um, there are Bibles that don't have chapters and verses, don't have the chapter and verse numbers. Uh, and so when you're reading it, it all just kind of flows like it would, um, ha well, like it would have had the references not been there. Uh, so in chapter 12, we said this, because Paul is building this theological foundation, chapters 1 through 11, talking about how God is rescuing people, justifying them, adopting them, giving his spirit to them, making them his family, bestowing his covenant riches upon them, and how all of this is the, the mercies of God, the grace of God, and how the only logical, reasonable, some translations say, Spiritual is a strange word there, but some translations say spiritual. The only logical response to God's mercy is to offer your body to God 
like a sacrifice, the way a priest offers a sacrifice. And the way you do that or what it looks like is what Paul is laying out for the next few chapters. That's exactly what Paul is laying out. He says, listen, the only logical response to the mercies of God is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable. You, like a priest that has been restored to your vocation of bringing glory and honor to God, take your whole self and offer it to God. This is your spiritual, again, logical, reasonable service, like priestly service. This is, this is how you serve and honor and worship God, is by taking your whole self and giving it to Him. And then He's going to go on for the next few chapters and show us what that looks like. Because it's one thing to just be really vague about that and just say, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength or offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. But what does that look like? Well, it looks like loving and serving the church, your neighbor, and even your enemy. And that last part is the bit that we probably struggle with the very most, I would imagine. Um, So so look again. I'm just going to read this real quickly because it speaks for itself. But Romans 12 And starting in uh, about verse 14. Because then it leads right into chapter 13. Again, if if you didn't have the chapter break in your your Bible, you might just flow right into it and assume, and rightly so, that Paul's still talking about the same thing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one. Evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's a part of this that, that says if, if you are presenting your body to God as a living sacrifice, then you don't seek vengeance, right? You don't repay people evil for evil. How did Jesus say that? When somebody slaps you on the right cheek, you turn and let them slap you on the other, right? That, that's how Jesus would say it. And so this is, this is part of what it looks like to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice is to not seek vengeance. But, but it would be one thing to just stop there. And I think a lot of people do just stop there. And just say right there, you know, don't be, don't be vengeful. But he goes on and he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what is our, what is our fear? Why is that hard to do? We're afraid that if we're meek and if, we're, if we serve those, not just not seek vengeance on those who are mean and cruel and, and persecute us, but we even go beyond that and we serve them and we feed them and we give them drink and we're kind to them and we do good to them and we bless those uh, who revile us and persecute us. What's our fear? I know my fear is... It's being hurt, right? Being taken advantage of. And, and that's why the fact that this, this entire lesson, this entire series, this entire book, the entire gospel, the, the whole of scripture is all about trusting God. 
that he is a keeper of promises. And, and the beauty of the gospel is that good, that doing good overcomes evil. Because there's a myth that exists in the heart and mind, I think, of every natural human being. Is that when, when there's fire, how do you fight fire? With fire, right? You fight fire with fire. When somebody pushes you, you push them back. But the gospel teaches us when somebody pushes you, you do good to them. You fight fire with good. And you overcome evil with good. Now, in that same vein, Paul now is going to transition or, or really just slide into this discussion of, well, then what is the Christian's interaction with or relationship to the governing authorities, right? Now, where, now let, let's think about this for just a second. Where, where is this church to whom Paul is writing, where are they located? Rome, right? Rome. So they're, they're in Rome, and, and obviously the, there's an emperor, right? And who's the emperor in Rome when Paul's writing this? Nero. Nero is a great, godly, wonderful, kind, gentle, terrific leader, right? No. Horrible. Eventually, probably not at this time, but eventually would be one of the worst persecutors, maybe not the worst, but one of the worst persecutors of Christians ever. Probably the one who kills both Paul and Peter, right? Or has them killed. And so I want us to think about it in that vein, because it's really easy to sort of jump, and again, as we've said every single week, it's really easy to jump right to application and to say, how does this apply to me, or what does this look like in my life? But just think about it in the context of the, the church to whom Paul is writing. He's telling them, this is how you live out the gospel. This is how you respond to the mercies of God. Do good. Overcome evil with Good. When you're persecuted, bless them, serve them, do good to them. Do that. Whether they're a Jew or a Roman or whoever they may be, love your brothers and your sisters, your neighbors, and even your enemies. Now, Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person... Now, again, to whom is Paul writing? I know this is elementary, but is he writing to, is he writing to the, the Roman emperor or is he writing to Christians? Christians, right? Now he's talking about human governments and empires and rulers and kings, but he's talking to Christians. Okay, I think that's incredibly important for us to remember. He's not talking to Nero, he's talking to Christians. So he says, let every person, every Christian, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, a couple things. First of all, he says, be subject to. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be subject to or to be uh, in submission to? Anybody else's translation say anything else? Under control. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. And so it, that, that word under, that's good because it's, it's under, right? So put yourself under. Be submissive to, be subject to. Recognize the fact that there are authorities that have been given authority 
over you. Now, as we think through the whole story of Scripture, have there been lots of times when God's people lived under the rule and the reign and that they had to be subject to and submissive to ruling powers, even if sometimes those ruling powers were pagan or wicked or persecuted them and that they still were expected to be subject to them. Lots of times, right? I mean, you think about, you think about the fact that uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken off into captivity, but then shortly after that, the, the, the Judeans were taken off, Judah was taken off into captivity by the Babylonians, and that led to the, the Persian control. And do we have stories that exist in, in, our, in our kind of collective memory about what it was like living as a child of God under the reign and rule of the Babylonians? We have some of those stories. You think about Daniel, remember Daniel, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. Now, were they, I mean, think through those stories about Daniel. Was Daniel, was he subject to the Babylonian rulers? Yeah, he was submissive to their rule. He was submissive to their reign. But was he always obedient to what they told him to do? He wasn't always obedient. So, so sometimes, sometimes being in subjection to doesn't necessarily mean being obedient. But, but what happened when, when, when Daniel, think about the, the times where Daniel wasn't obedient. The first story is about the food that he was supposed to eat, right? Daniel and his friends were supposed to eat this food. And Daniel went to the guy that was overseeing them and said, hey, we can't eat this because we're Jewish. And we've got these laws and we have to honor God and we can't eat this food. And so God made them see him in a favorable, favorable light, and he was able to not eat that. But listen, if, if he was weak at the end of the test period, was it going to go well for him? It wasn't, was it? He could die. The guy over him could end up dying. It was a pretty precarious situation. And then you remember Daniel chapter 6 when the king passed the law. You can't, you can't pray to anybody but the king. You can't appeal to anybody but the king. And so what did Daniel do? kept praying to God. Was he disobedient? Yes. And when they came to throw him in the lion's den, did he resist? No. Even, even if it meant his life, he was still submissive, wasn't he? And subject to. And he said, if this is the price, if the price is honoring God and you believe that you've got to throw me into the lion's den, then, then that's what you've got to do. Or you think about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were told to bow down to the golden statue, right? And they said, nope, we're not going to do it. But, but they weren't really fighting it, right? They weren't fighting it. They simply said, we're not going to do it, and God will save us. And you can throw us in the fiery furnace if you want to, but God can save us. And he says, but even, even if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down to the statue. And can you see how there's a slight difference? A lot of times, being submission, being in submission, in submission to or being subject to means obedience. Sometimes it doesn't always mean obedience. It means something different, but it always means not not fighting, not resisting. In fact, he goes on to say, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And that word resist literally means to like draw up in battle against, right? Now, were there going to be times in this congregation's near future where the governing authorities were going to throw them to the lions and throw them in the arena 
and impale them on spikes and use their bodies to light the streets of Rome. And even in those situations, were they supposed to be subject to the governing authorities? Yes. Now, does that mean when the governing authorities said, hey, listen, you have to deny Jesus and you have to worship Caesar, does that mean they had to obey that? No, of course not. But it didn't mean that they were supposed to be in subjection to. Now, look at, just as kind of an example, look at Jeremiah 29. It's not up on the, the screen, I apologize. But if you get your Bible, Jeremiah 29. And, and again, Jeremiah is writing to the exiles that are in Babylonian captivity. And so again, you've got Babylonians that are over. They are the ruling authority over these Jewish captives. And there was sort of a rumor circulating that we're going to go home soon. Don't worry about this. We're going to go home soon. Don't worry about this captivity thing. This will be over before you know it, and we're going to be back. And Jeremiah says, that's not true. You're going to be here for decades. And he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, this is verse 4, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But, here I love this verse, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And you see Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego live that out under Babylonian captivity and then live that out under Persian captivity. That they, 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 they lived good lives. They were subject to the ruling authorities. They sought the welfare of the city. But there were times when they had to honor God rather than the king of Persia or the king of Babylon. And there were times where they had to obey God rather than that king. But all the time, even, even when they had to disobey, they did it respectfully and kindly. You see, you see Paul himself lived this out, don't you? When he's on trial before Agrippa or Festus or Felix, do you see him like yelling and cussing and, you know, cursing them and saying, hey, you know, you don't have any authority? No, I mean, he's respectful and submissive, even if that submission is unto death, right? And, and Paul, again, is explaining to them, this is what it looks like to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Love, love your neighbor and love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. And if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And if your enemy or somebody who's not your enemy, somebody who's just a governing authority, tells you, as Jesus would say, you know, somebody compels you to take their pack for a mile, you don't say, hey, I'm not going to take your pack a mile. You carry it yourself. I don't have to do that. I belong to God. I don't belong to you. Nope. You not only take it a mile in subjection to them, you take it two miles. Is this radical? Yeah. It's, it's something other than, than what we typically think about or see. Is it obedient? Yes, yeah, it's obedient most of the time. And sometimes it's even a little bit rebellious. But even when it's rebellious in that, sir, sir, I can't. I can't do that because I belong to Yahweh God. 
I, I follow Jesus, and I can't do that. And if you've got to take my life, then take my life. But I can't, I can't do that. And so Paul would even say that these governing authorities that are put there, that are over you, they're, they're put there by whom? By, by God, right? And you, you kind of almost have to picture a, a, a structure, a hierarchy, so to speak. And there, there's God and, you know, there's this big hierarchy and there's governing authorities. There's emperors and rulers and kings and governments and kingdoms. And sometimes you find yourself in subjection to those or under them. And you have to intentionally, deliberately be subject to them because God is in charge of them and God has appointed them. And anyone who resists will incur judgment, both the judgment of the government, but also the judgment of God. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, First of all, again, we have to remember that this isn't written to Nero. It's not written to the Roman Senate. It's written to Christians. And, and Paul says, listen, God, God has a plan and a purpose, and God has appointed these governments and authorities and empires and rulers to serve his purposes, And your job is to what? Verse 3, then do what? What is good? That's your job. Do what is good. And I think about, somebody brought up after class two weeks ago about 1 Peter. And read 1 Peter and, and Romans 13 hand in hand, right? And they go right together. And Peter would say over and over again, listen, do good. Love your enemies. Do good. And and who's going who's gonna to be against you if you do what's good? The answer is usually nobody, right? Nobody, usually you're not going to be punished for doing good. In fact, you're going to earn a good reputation for yourself and for the community of God's people by doing good. So that's what you do. You do good. But Peter would go on to say, but even if you do suffer for doing good, it's to your glory. It's a blessing. In fact, he would say it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here's your job. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he, that's the government or the governing authorities, is God's servant. I, I think there's some, some things we got to think through on that too. It doesn't mean, it can't mean that every empire or every kingdom or every, every king is good, right? That's not what it says. It doesn't say they're all good. In fact, I think it's really helpful to read like the apocalyptic literature, like, like Revelation. In Revelation and, and other apocalyptic books like Ezekiel and Daniel, how are kingdoms usually pictured? Like, search the B. Beasts, right? Like beasts. Yeah, somebody said Babylon. Yeah, Babylon. Yeah, Babylon as sort of this archetype of what kingdoms are like. But they're, they're these beasts, they're these monsters. And, and God has a purpose for allowing these, these, these beasts to serve in the role that he allows them to serve. And, and what is it? To punish evildoers, right? And, and somebody said this, and I, I like this, that, 
that sometimes, and I think we recognize this, that even a, a bad government, a bad kingdom, is oftentimes better than no government, right? Than, than anarchy. In anarchy, everybody just runs amok, right? Everybody just does whatever they want to do, and it just is a disaster. And God allows these kingdoms to rise and to punish evildoers and to be his avenger. And so, but in that light, understanding God's in charge of the universe. God is in charge of kingdoms and kings and rulers and authorities And it's not your job to fight against them and bring them down. If God wants to bring them down, can God bring them down? Yes. Does he bring them down? Yes. Your job is to what, verse 3? Do what is good. That's your job. Do what is good. Because if you do what is evil, if you try to overcome evil with evil, you will be punished both by the government and by God. So you do what is good because the government, the the rulers, the empires is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And, And again, I mean, that goes back to exactly what we were reading at the end of chapter 12, right? Why should you not seek vengeance? Who is the avenger? God is, right? And sometimes, oftentimes, he uses governments, kingdoms, rulers, empires, whatever, to bring about his vengeance on the evildoers, right? And, and you, your job, your job is not to resist or fight against it or array yourself in battle against the forces that God has put into place. Your job is simply to do what is good. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also, here's our favorite thing, right? Pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I mean, it's really, it's really pretty simple, isn't it? Again, Starting in verse tw- in chapter 12, all of this is, here's your response to the mercies of God. Because God has been so merciful as to adopt you and justify you and give you his spirit and make you part of his covenant people, here's your logical response. Offer your body to God as a priest offers a sacrifice. Here's what it looks like. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Repay no one evil for evil. And if you owe somebody, pay them. If it's the government, then pay them. If it's somebody else that you owe, then then pay them. If you owe somebody respect, give them respect. If you owe someone honor, give them honor. Our job is simple. Number one, do what is good. Number two, live in subjection to human authorities paying taxes, respect, and honor, all the things that are due their position of authority over you that God gave them. I think it's it's interesting, and I think that maybe there's two, and I wish we had time to explore this more, but I think there's sort of two extremes that we sort of gravitate towards. One One would be rebellion, and we say, well, listen, if, if, if kingdoms are set up to do what's good, and then they don't do what's good, does that mean then we can fight against them? 
that's not what it says, right? What it says is be in subjection to and don't resist. And again, if you put, take what Peter says, uh, all throughout, even if they persecute you, even if they hurt you, you do what is right. You overcome evil with good, right? So one sort of extreme we might go to is rebellion, right? And we say, okay, well, if they're not doing what's right, then I'm going to fight against them. If they persecute me, then I'm going to fight against them. So that's one extreme. And the other extreme is, is alliance with and allegiance to. I think we have to be very careful on that side of things too. And, and we assume that if God set this government up, then it's my job to support them and work with them. Again, I mean, I know it's so hard not to just jump right into 21st century in our, in our life. But I mean, think about the world that they were living in. That's not what Paul was telling them, right? Like, you know, just join with the Romans and, you know, do whatever Nero wants you to do and just be a, a loyal Nero supporter. I mean, that's not what he was saying. And certainly as we look through history, I think about, I think the, about the followers of Jesus that were living in, in Germany in the rise of Nazism and, and sort of their struggle with some of these passages and ideas. What, what's my job here? What do I do? Your job is simple, right? It's always been simple. Do good. To whom? Everybody. Do good. Even when the government wants you to do evil, do good even when it costs you your life. Do good even when it hurts. Be in subjection to. Don't fight against. Don't rebel. Don't be, uh, don't be rebellious. Do good and be in subjection to. That doesn't mean you go along with everything that the ruling authorities want you to do. Just like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and a thousand other examples that we could use. And nor does it mean that you fight against them if they're not doing everything right. God's in charge of them. God will settle it. Here's what you do. You do good. You do good. Again, that's the theme of of 1 Peter. And it's hard to read this without reading this in light of that. Now, verse chapter 13 and verse 8. Again, he ends verse 7 by saying, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes, revenue, respect, honor. And then verse 8, owe no one anything except to... Love each other. And you, you sort of look at it and understand that you owe everyone, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. But again, I mean, right now he's really talking about, he's talking about your interaction with everybody. You owe them what? Love. Why? Because they've loved you? Not necessarily. What's, what is all of this in response to? Romans 12 and verse 1. The mercies of God. That's why you owe everyone love. So owe no one anything except love and love everyone. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's real simple. Here's what it looks like to offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And think about that for a second. Stop right there. If we really loved each other, would we commit adultery? If we really loved each other, if a husband really loves his wife, if a woman loves the person she might commit adultery with, if a man really loves the person he might commit adultery with, if a person loves the people at whom they might look at 
pornography involving? Do we really love people when we treat them like objects? Do we really love people when we do to them what is spiritually detrimental? Do we really love people when we break our covenant with them? Do we really love people? I mean, fill in the blank. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you really loved each other as a response to the mercies of God, because God has so loved you and been merciful and gracious to you so as to justify you so that you're forgiven and you're made holy and perfect and you're adopted into his family and you're given his spirit and you are lavished upon all of the riches of covenant membership, now you, because you've received all of those things, love each other. And if you really love each other, then you'll fulfill the law. All of the the commandments of the law, don't commit adultery, don't murder. I mean, obviously, if you love people, you're not going to kill them. Do not steal. Do not covet. I mean, again, if you really love someone and they have something that's really nice, what's the fleshly tendency to do when somebody has something better than you have? The fleshly tendency is to say, I want what you have. I don't want you to have it. I want to have it. But Paul's already covered this, hasn't he? Romans chapter 12. What do you do when someone is rejoicing over good that has come their way? You rejoice with them. You don't say, "Mm, I'm so mad you have that and I, I should have that. I'm a better person than you. You shouldn't have that stuff. I should have that stuff. That's our flesh, isn't it? Paul says, listen, this, this is the new, the new human being that you're becoming in Jesus. And if you, if you truly set your minds on all of the things that he laid out in chapters 1 through 11, and you respond to that logically and reasonably and spiritually, and you offer yourself to God, and then it changes the way you look at other people. And when good things happen to them, or they have good things, you rejoice with them. You don't covet what they have. You're glad they have it. You congratulate them on their good fortune. You congratulate them that they have that rather than wanting it for yourself. Again, I mean, think about how, how simplified all of this is and how it would really change everything if we learn to think about our life and our behavior in light of the cross, in light of the mercies of God, in light of the fact that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. It's super simple, isn't it? When you love somebody, you don't do wrong to them. So, so what, what, if we, what if we stopped and asked ourselves, is this loving? Is this loving? Is, is what I'm about to say loving? Is what I'm about to do loving? Am I going to, am I going to wrong someone? Am I going to take something away from them that belongs to them or that they deserve and that I'm going to take it away from them because I'm jealous or I'm envious or I'm covetous? Am I going to hurt them? Am I taking away their opportunity? Am I taking away their opportunity to experience in Christ what I've experienced? What what if? What if we really stopped and thought about our interactions with people? 
And we stopped and we thought, you know what? Am I, am I helping bring them closer to Jesus so that they can experience in Christ what I've experienced? Or is what I'm doing going to cause them to be a little bit further from Christ? so that they're a little less likely to experience in Christ what I've experienced. If I do that, and I'm constantly becoming a stumbling block to people encountering Christ and experiencing what I've experienced in Christ, am I doing wrong to them? Yes. And Paul says, love does no wrong to his neighbor. Love does what's in our neighbor's best interest. And sometimes, sometimes, that doesn't just always mean sweet and bubbly and, you know, I mean, it doesn't always mean that. Sometimes it can mean telling people the truth, even difficult, challenging truth that says, listen, the way you're headed and what you're doing, I, I, I want, if you'll let me, I'll, I want to share with you a, a different way and a better way, something I've, I've experienced and what I've learned in Christ and what Jesus is showing me. Share that with them. That's what love looks like. Help them to experience in Christ what you've experienced. That's what love does. And when you love, you have fulfilled the law. Okay, verses 8 through 10. Besides besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed, than when we first believed. What does that mean? I I thought he was writing to people who were saved. And he says, salvation is nearer now, we're closer now to salvation than when we first believed. What does that mean? If we're already saved, when we read through the New Testament, we see that salvation is sometimes talked about in past tense, like you were saved when you did this, when you believed this, when you put your trust in Christ, when you were baptized, you were saved. And there's sometimes it's talked about in the present tense, you're being saved. And sometimes like here, it's talked about in the future tense. And remember what we said in the very beginning. What is the book of Romans all about? God is rescuing creation from the reign of sin and death with the promise that he's going to redeem our mortal bodies along with all creation, verse chapter 8, and will be redeemed when his wrath is revealed against sin. And this entire section here, he's talking about our life like, like everybody else is asleep. And you used to be asleep. And the daylight is coming. You can see it. It's beginning to break over the horizon. It's, the sun is coming up. And you know this isn't a time to sleep. This is a time to be awake because you, you know the day that's coming when everything is going to be changed. Everything is going to be made new. Everything is going to, all of this sin and death and darkness, it's all going to come to an end when his wrath is revealed against sin. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A new day is coming and you're already a part of that day. Real quick, here's the summary of Romans 13. Those who are being rescued from the darkness should live as people of light by doing good and not evil, loving their neighbors, and living in subjection or submission to human authorities. 